Let's start with a word of prayer and we'll get into this. Father, we thank you for the opportunity tonight to study your word, that we understand that there are many of your people around the world who don't even have a Bible, much less an opportunity to join like this and to read it and to study it and to receive its instruction. Lord, we want to just express our appreciation for the grace and that gift that you give us. Help us to take advantage of it, Lord, not to uh, let it slip away, but as we look at their word tonight, I pray that you'd open its, its meaning to us uh, it would, and you would open our hearts so that there would be just this joining together, Lord, this meeting of our heart and your word in such a way that it would have transformational impact upon our lives. We believe that your word does that, Lord, by the grace of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The letter to Titus, the last of Paul's three what we call pastoral epistles, is written, obviously, as it tells us in the very opening, Paul, a servant of God. And in verse 4, he tells us that, again, uh, the namesake of the book is Titus. It's written to Titus. Um, Titus is an interesting character because uh, he's mentioned 13 times in Paul's letter. Uh, the only person that is mentioned more often is Timothy, who's mentioned some 25 times. Uh, in Paul writing his letter to the Corinthians, uh, described Timothy as being, he said in chapter 8, verse 23 of that book, my partner and my fellow worker. Uh, it's an interesting uh, description because the word partner there is linked to this word koinonia. It means literally someone that you are linked together in a very intimate and meaningful way so that it's not a casual working relationship, but this, they lived and slept and walked and served together. In fact, uh, we know that... Uh, that Titus partnered with Paul for at least 15 years. So as we kind of draw kind of a portrait of Paul's ministry, we begin to get this picture that there was an inner core of gentlemen and uh, maybe a few ladies as well who were regular and continuous traveling companions with Paul. They were part of this entourage that made their way around the world planting churches so that Titus would have been one of those individuals who was up close and personal with all the events of Paul's ministry. Uh, we know that he was a Greek convert, and interesting, Paul had, re had Timothy to be circumcised so he could interact with the Jewish community, but Titus was not asked to do that. And in a way, it's almost like Paul was trying to demonstrate or open the doors for Timothy to co-minister with him in, in Jewish synagogues, but I guarantee you that Titus was with him, he had to sit in the balcony away from the main congregation because he would have been a Gentile, he would have been uncircumcised, so that almost like Paul is wanting to say, I don't want to require the Greeks who convert to Christ to be uh, circumcised <clears throat> after the Jewish tradition. He was uh, from the city of Syrian Antioch, and uh, if you don't remember what's about Syrian Antioch, it became the center of what we would call Gentile Christianity soon after the founding of the church. It went from Jerusalem to Antioch, and it's from Antioch in Syria that Paul uh, began all of his missionary journeys. He would leave from there, he would return to there and actually report to the spiritual leadership, the elder of the church in Antioch, on the uh, nature of his and the successes of his ministry. Um, the partnership, as I said, between him and Titus lasted probably about 15 years from about 51 AD when Paul first got to Syrian Antioch until about 67 when uh, Paul was executed. So that we know that he was even with Paul 
up until very close to the end of Paul's life, uh, where it appears that Paul may in fact have sent him out to do more ministry work. He clearly had a deep trust and affection for Titus. Uh, as, as in verse 4, he refers to him as my true son in our common faith. Uh, in other words, that Titus was a young, young, like Timothy, was a young man when he began his ministry with Paul, not as close as Timothy, but yet nonetheless, he would have been uh, considered almost like a spiritual son to him as well. In fact, when he wrote to the Corinthians about, he was telling him he's going to send Titus to them, and he tells them, he says, I thank God who put it into his heart, the heart of Titus, the same concern I have for you. In other words, what Paul was saying is, he feels about you the exact same way that I feel about you. In other words, what Titus, the way he was living his life, he, he wasn't it wasn't a career, it was a calling. And it was, it was a calling that consumed his entire life so that just as Paul felt about the churches that were planted, so Titus carried that same love, affection, bond, and commitment uh, that Paul and Timothy had. Therefore, Paul trusted him with a lot of things. We, we know that uh, that when Paul went to the council in Jerusalem to discuss the issue of whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised, Titus was part of that group that was with him. Uh, he, was, he sent him from uh, Ephesus to Corinth when the problems in Corinth arose, which were the occasion for the two letters that we have to the Corinthians. Um, he commissions Titus to go. Probably Titus was the carrier of the letter, but he was commissioned by Paul to address the problems that were there and uh, to correct them as he had the opportunity. Um, when Paul was making a collection for the saints in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem suffered a great deal of persecution. Uh, many of the believers became impoverished because they were ostracized from jobs and synagogue and basically society as a whole. Paul raised funds from the Gentile churches. He said, they've sown to you spiritual seed. They have a right to reap from you uh, material seed. In other words, you, need, you have an obligation to care about their needs. We find that it's actually uh, Titus who was sent around to the Gentile churches to make the collection and gather these monies so that Paul trusted him with these things. When Paul <coughs> uh, uh, calls for him to meet him again in Macedonia to give an accounting of the, those things. And finally, in the context of today's study, this book, it's uh, when Paul leaves the, the island of Crete uh, to go on and continue planting churches, he leaves Titus behind to organize the church and address some of the challenges that were there. Uh, a little bit of the background in the letter after uh, Paul's first Roman imprisonment that we've talked about earlier in his prison letters, um, which was a period from about 59 to 62 AD, uh, Paul, when once, once he was acquitted the first time, he resumed his church planting mission. He began to travel. And one of the places that he went to was apparently the Isle of Crete. Uh, the Isle of Crete is the largest of what's referred to as the Greek Isles. Now, don't confuse Crete with Cyprus. Cyprus is closer to modern-day Lebanon. Crete is, very, you know, is on the tip of, of Greece, about 170 miles off the mainland of Greece. Uh, it was the location of the ancient Minoan culture, if you have any familiarity with that at all. 
But it was an ancient culture, ancient Greek culture, and it was the largest of what we refer to as the Greek islands. Um, <clears throat> after planting the church, Paul left Titus, he says in verse 5, to straighten out what was left unfinished. In other words, he was to finish taking care of some challenging issues that needed to be dealt with. Uh, as to what happened with Paul, where did Paul go after he left Crete? It's a big question. Uh, some suggest because Romans 15, 24, Paul made the statement, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Some think he went all the way to Spain and, and planted churches there, which is quite possible. But what we do know from this letters is that he did plant churches on what we call the western shore, the western seacoast side of Greece, because Paul makes the statement, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Nicopolis in the, in the region of uh, Epirus, uh, part of Greece, and Paul says, because I have decided to winter there. So that one thing that we can tell from this, at least, is that Paul was extremely active. He never stopped moving from place to place, planting churches as many as he possibly could until, as we talked about last week in 2 Timothy, he is rearrested and then shortly thereafter taken to Rome and executed uh, by Emperor Nero. The date of the writing is the winter of 63 AD, so that just about the same time that Paul is writing to 1 Timothy, he's also writing this letter of Titus, and uh, becomes, as I said, the, the last we have in the text of Paul's uh, uh, pastoral letters, letters that were addressed specifically to pastors and not churches. Um, <clears throat> what was the purpose of the letter? What was the objective that Paul had in writing this? Well, as we said, and he declared, he said he, he, uh, to set the churches that were on the island of Crete in order, and that meant both organizationally, in other words, there needed to be a, a governmental structure for the church, but also doctrinally. And, and the doctrinal part really does consume a lot of the letter. Um, six times Paul talks about the importance of teaching. Uh, in fact, in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he starts off by saying, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And also this phrase, sound doctrine, uh, it appears some five times in the letter. Now the word, the phrase sound doctrine, sound means to be healthy, uh, wholesome, uh, together. In other words, he begins to, re to point out to us that there is sound doctrine and there is unsound doctrine. There is doctrine that promotes spiritual health and there is doctrine that can hinder or even harm spiritual health. And he says it's very important that you make sure that you clearly establish what is sound doctrine. I used the illustration a couple of weeks ago how that the way that uh, bankers tell a counterfeit note is by handling the genuine, not handling the artificial. And the idea is if you just go through enough, a stack, of, a big enough stack of the real things, your fingertips will immediately tell you when you hit a counterfeit. So they have them just, just count money for weeks, and then one day they just slip a counterfeit in there and see if they pick it up. And if they hit a note and go, wait a minute, that feels strange. Uh, I remember that happened to me one time, was going through McDonald's. Gave them a $5 bill, and as I handed it, I thought, that feels really strange. And then as I drove away, I thought, my goodness, I bet you that was a counterfeit bill. So I just kept on driving. But 
just took my Big Mac and ran for it. Um, <laughs> but I just, you know, it, it's a funny thing because when you do touch one, you can, you can actually feel that difference. Well, Paul's just simply saying, really what you need to do is ground people in, in what is sound doctrine. They don't need to know everything about every false doctrine. They'll just know when it doesn't sound right. I remember when I was a little boy, a friend of mine took me to a, uh, a kind of a VBS thing at his church, and I wasn't a church kid, so it was kind of a peculiar experience for me, but we went there, and he had this really fascinating speaker, and he had two coins, two silver dollars, and they looked identical, and he said, can you tell the difference? And I couldn't tell the difference. They looked like the same thing, and then he says, okay, just listen, and he said, now everybody close their eyes. And he, and he says, I'm going to drop these coins on the table. And so he dropped the first one and had this wonderful deep bell ring tone to it. And then he dropped the other one and it went clink, 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 clink. And immediately, you know, everybody in the room knew, oh, that one's a counterfeit because it doesn't have the right sound. And that's kind of the idea, again, that Paul is saying here, that we don't warn people against false teaching by spending a lot of time talking about it. In fact, we'll find that Paul's advice is just the opposite. He says, but what you determine what is sound doctrine by listening to it, when you hear an artificial counterfeit, something that doesn't sound right, it doesn't have the right ring to it, doesn't have what we call the ring of truth, then your ear picks it up and you can begin to discern, wait a minute, something's not quite right here. Um, I just hope in saying that you're not going to tell me that after I get done tonight. Anyway, but um, so anyway, that becomes a, a big part of it that he talks about this. In fact, he, he comments about a very significant problem on the other side of this equation about false prophets and, and false teachers. In verses 10 of 11 of, of verse chapter 1, he says, for there are many rebellious people uh, mere talkers and deceivers. So he's kind of got, there are rebellious people, people who always are pushing against the system. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. And then you got people who are mere talkers. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. But he says, thirdly, they're also deceivers. There are people who are intentionally leading people after themselves. And I didn't say they lead them astray because I've never known a false teacher who would consciously admit that he was leading people astray because to do that would have, you know, immediately lead, lead anybody to repentance. But they rationalize it so they say they're, they're leading people after themselves. And that's always one of the things that about false theology or in, in, that, that is evident. It begins to focus your eyes on the vessel, not upon the Lord. You begin to have an undue reverence for the tool that God is using and not the God who crafts with the tool. So it would, it would be like me, you coming over to my house and I'd take you out and, to my shop and I'd pull out my favorite hammer and spend the evening talking about this incredible hammer. You know, it, you probably think that I probably hit myself on the head too many times with that hammer because, it, you know, it wouldn't make any sense. But rather, it's the thing that you point to what was accomplished with the tool. And that's really where I think that we, we rejoice in the works of God. Uh, we rejoice in the fact that we get to be used as a tool in the works of God. But the real glory goes to God. The Lord, a man can plant, Paul said, a man can water, but it's God who reaps. It's God who gives the increase and causes things to, to grow and to happen. And so false teachers draw after themselves. And then he defines it a little further. He says, especially those of the circumcision group. And that, would, we understand, would be Jews who were teaching that you had to be circumcised after you came to Christ, that being 
receiving Christ was not enough. You had to be baptized, and after baptism you had to be circumcised and become fully a Jew. And he said, especially those who are teaching this doctrine, he adds, they must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So in the end, as Paul would warn about the false teachers and false prophets, he says, they want to make you into merchandise. They want to exploit you for their own personal profit. Well, it's interesting, I think a cultural note at least, that many of the Jews of that time relied not simply on the Old Testament for their theology. We've talked about before that the only Bible the early church had was, uh, was the Old Testament, particularly what was called the Septuagint translation. It was the first translation of the Bible from Hebrew into another language, which happened to be Greek, the main language of the world. So that the New Testament writers, including Paul and the others, would quote out of the Septuagint or the Greek translation, and that was the common Bible that they used, Uh, being comprised of simply the books of the Old Testament. But along with it, there were some other writings. We call them the apocryphal writings. The word apocryphal means hidden. In other words, and what's really hidden about them is their origin. These were writings that claimed to be inspired uh, writings, but we pretty much know they weren't. Um, And also they're referred to as some of them as pseudographical uh, writings. Pseudographical means means false writings. A lot of them would, for example, you had the, the, uh, the, the epistle of Jeremiah or the epistle of Baruch, uh, that neither Jeremiah or Baruch had anything to do with. Uh, we, we, we know that with certainty that these were never written by this man, or even the wisdom of Solomon or Ecclesiasticus and other things that claimed to be authored by Solomon or Jeremiah or others, but were not. And uh, they aren't terrible books necessarily, but many of them, like Tobit and Judith, uh, compa- contained a lot of mythology uh, that was not biblically true and uh, were not recognized by uh, Judaism as a whole as being something that was inspired scripture. Um, <clears throat> it would be kind of like the difference that you and I would make between reading the Bible and reading something written by Max Lucado. I mean, it, it might have biblical truth in it, it might be interesting and fun to read, but you would never replace your Bible with a book by Max Licato, I hope, <laughs> although I'm beginning to wonder these days. But nonetheless, it's that same idea. You wouldn't give it the same weight of authority. You would check whatever Max or any of those other guys wrote against what the Bible says. You wouldn't allow that to take precedent over the Bible because we know that uh, books written by men are subject to the errors that men are always subject to. But there were a lot of things that were mythology within these books and really exalted the roles of angels and things of that nature, that there were Jewish teachers and many Gentiles who began to read these books wouldn't understand that they weren't part of the text and they began to present these things as doctrines many of which doctrines live on today in some of the liturgical churches that still hold to some of these writings. Well, Paul's counsel in in verse 14 of chapter 1, first of all, is saying, pay no attention to Jewish myths. I mean, that's what these are. These are a lot of Jewish myths. Uh, Or in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, he calls them foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. 
In other words, Paul is saying essentially, don't allow yourself to begin to run down these rabbit trails because they won't lead you closer to Christ. They won't build you up in your faith. So the first thing that Paul was really trying to address here again is that there was sound doctrine being taught and false doctrine being refuted. But secondly, he addresses some character issues. In fact, in, in uh, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, he makes this comment about the Cretans. He says that even one of their own prophets has said, actually it's the, uh, the poet Epimenes, he says the Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now, he was a Cretan, and he's saying this about the Cretans. So, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, it's kind of like that old saying, I can say anything I want about my mama, but don't you dare say anything. So he can say things about his mama. And he says, basically, uh, my, my countrymen are liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Then Paul adds, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith. So we have two issues here, being sound in doctrine and also being sound in faith that I have sound orthodoxy, but I also have sound orthopraxy, or what we call the practice of what I say I believe, that those things need to come together. And that's why in the end of the letter, he says in verse 8 of chapter 3 to Titus, be careful to devote yourself to doing what is good, focusing on what is good in the eyes of God. It's interesting because there are some people who say that this still is a fair characterization of the island Crete. Now, is anybody from Crete here? I don't want to go any further if you are. Anyway, okay. I had a friend of mine who was a, who was a merchant seaman. He said, you know, before we, we uh, disembarked in our port of call in Crete, he says, we were warned, be careful because these guys are some of the most dishonest and, and slippery guys that you'll ever meet. And he thought, so when he read this in the Bible, he thought, that's interesting. They still say that about the people in Crete. Uh, it's interesting because one of the most famous sons of Crete, at least in the 20th century, was the, uh, the famous uh, writer Nikos Kazantzakis. And if you don't know who Nikos Kazantzakis, he wrote the book Zorba the Greek in the 50s, but he also wrote one called The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, one of the most abominable heretical books that you can ever write. I mean, it's so bad that Martin Scorsese made a movie of it, which was even worse than the book. But anyway, what can I say? Um, but it's funny because in, in one of his books, Zorba the Greek, Kazantzakis depicts the island or the islanders of Crete as being a cruel and immoral people, which again, Zorba, uh, Nikos Kazantzakis was also from Crete. So uh, these guys are saying this is something that's kind of the cultural makeup and of this kind of the DNA of this place. It's, it's not a, a place that really has a clear sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is true and false, what is good and evil. Amorality means that you're just pragmatic about life. It's the direction our culture is going where you don't worry about if things are true or false, right or wrong, good or evil. You just, what will advantage me? What will get me further to my objective? I don't allow morals really to uh, hold me back. In fact, I hold morals as being extremely flexible. That's why we get into what we call situational ethics. Uh, what is true or false? Whatever I decide the situation di dictates to me in whatever circumstance I have to be in. Uh, it's a slippery slope to chaos and anarchy in any culture, and um, which may explain a lot about Crete. Anyway, so Paul gives this charge to Titus again. Titus, he says, particularly says, ordain good and godly role models 
Find men who can be leaders who will be role models of what is good and godly. And the, the second thing, as I simply phrase it, is Christianize the Cretans. Now, Cretans has become kind of a way of speaking about somebody who is rather uncivilized. Uh, my mother used to always say, don't behave like a Cretan. I had no idea what a Cretan was. I had no idea it referred to a whole <laughs> population of people who live on an island, but I just had the sense I probably, it probably wasn't good to be one. Um, and in a way, that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. You need to kind of, these guys are Christian, now you need to kind of Christianize them. They need to begin to have lives that really are, agree with what they say they believe and what they profess as their faith in Christ. Which brings me to what is the key verse in my opinion, and we've all talked about this before that my opinion is always correct. Um, in chapter 2, verse 10, it's one of my actually favorite passages in the New Testament where he says to us, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's an interesting way of speaking of the grace of God because Paul isn't speaking of grace as being a theological concept as we often do, but he's talking about as being the power of God. The grace of God isn't just something that I believe theologically, it's also something that has an impact. The grace of God is truth, but it also is a power, a force that's at work in my life. And he says, if I truly am experiencing the grace of God, I'm going to live and pursue a godly life that is consistent with the Word of God, uh, free from worldly passions and free from uh, uh, being out of control and self-indulgent. So that when there are people who use the grace of God as a way of excusing bad behavior, they're corrupting theology. Essentially, they're teaching something that isn't true, that the grace of God leads to godliness. It doesn't lead us to ungodliness or a libertine lifestyle. It actually, as Paul would say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, he says, the, the love of Christ constrains us. In other words, it takes control of us and begins to focus our life. It doesn't liberate us to live any way we want any more than uh, if I love my wife, I'm not going to be hanging out with other women. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense if I truly love my wife. The idea is if I love my wife, I'm going to be looking for opportunities to be with my wife, not to be with some other woman. And that's almost the dynamic that we see when people talk about, well, I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, therefore I can live my life any way I want. You know, I, I, just, I know in just a practical way that if, if I were to just live any way I wanted, I'd never be able to go bathroom standing up ever again. My wife would make sure that that was corrected really quickly. And I'm just, and that's, that's the idea. It's totally incongruent. They're inconsistent. Those two things can't hang together. They have to be that if there's grace in my life, it leads me into a pursuit of God. It leads me into an understanding of His will and His desire for my life and any other uh, uh, attitude. Um, and I'm not saying that if you have the grace of God, you're perfect, but, you know, it brings with it the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But anything that gives me permission to live an uncontrolled life, an undisciplined life, is, is a false doctrine. It's a false teaching. And, and we need to recognize it as being something of that nature. Well, let's kind of go through the, the text in outline form in, in the time that we have remaining. 
And really, I, I break it into two major sections, and I entitled the first one as simply straightened out what is left unfinished. Again, quoting Paul's injunction. And he tells Timothy again two things. Number one, he says, appoint elders. In verse 5, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The term elder literally refers to somebody who is mature in the faith. It's not something that is necessarily designated by age. In fact, Paul in writing to Timothy makes a distinction between people who are elderly, who are older, and should be treated with respect and honor, but at the same time when he talked about those who are the governing leaders of the church, they need to be spiritually mature people, and this becomes the, the designation. In fact, he gives 13 qualifications, positive qualifications of these who will lead. He says in verse 6 of, of chapter 1 that they should be blameless, not perfect, but they shouldn't have uh, unaddressed issues in their life. There's, there's not things that they're refusing to deal with. Uh, they're supposed to have one wife. They're supposed to have children who believe uh, their home life is orderly and not crazy. Uh, they're hospitable. They love what is good. They're, they're self-controlled. They're upright. They're holy. They're disciplined. He says they encourage others by sound doctrine, and they refute those who oppose it. So he says these are the kind of things you want to look at this is not a comprehensive list. If we tie it together with, with Paul's injunctions, we find that there are a significant number of qualifiers for those who are considered to be elders. But he also has five disqualifiers, five things we look at and saying, if these things are, are the governing, the thing that you see predominantly in their life, then they're not qualified because they're not mature. They, they cannot be overbearing. Uh, the idea of overbearing is that they're control freaks that good leaders are not control freaks. They're not trying to run everybody else's life. Uh, secondly, they're not quick-tempered, uh, and, and you know, basically their emotions are on a hair trigger. Uh, not, they can't be drunks, they can't be violent, and they can't be dishonest. You know, <laughs> if we had our choice, we wouldn't allow people like that to be our neighbors. The simple fact is these are obvious things, but nonetheless, he says, these are the kind of things that we need to understand because if those are in people's lives, they may be saved, but they're not mature. They don't, they're not walking in, in victory. They're not letting grace prevail in their life. And it's not saying that they can't ever lose their temper or do something wrong, but that's not the thing that defines who they are. And that's, that becomes a critical. What is the defining characteristics of the person's life? The second thing he says is once you appoint leaders, you also need to silence the false teachers, which to me is an interesting. He says in verse 11 of chapter 1 about the false teachers that they must be silenced, which implies that they were in the church. They weren't people, he's not talking about people who are outside of the church. He's not talking about, you know, because there's all sorts of people, you know, go down to the SDA plaza and sit around and you'll have conversations that'll keep you entertained all day long. I mean, there's people who believe the wildest and crazy things, and that's not something that you should get out of joint about or start railing on people or anything like that. But Paul's referring to people who are in the church, claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet they're, they're saying things they shouldn't be saying. They're teaching things that aren't true. Uh, and he says they need to be silenced. In fact, in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, they claim to know God. They claim to be followers of Christ but by their actions they deny Him. So you look at what they say and you look at what they live and the two things don't match. One of the simple facts of life is that all of us are revealed not by our words but by our actions. 
We're revealed by our actions more than anything else. And so it's, uh, we, in fact, we all recognize that I believe the things that someone says whose life's actions are consistent for the most part with what they say. And so he says, you know, look at that and make sure that you're not uh, letting these guys have a platform. In fact, he kind of goes on and says they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Unfit for office, unfit for leadership. So that's the straighten things up part of it. This was stuff that Paul, or excuse me, Titus was supposed to address right now and quickly. But the second part is the teaching part where he says, teach them, and he's three things he wants to teach. Teach them to be sound in doctrine, teach them to be sound in faith, and teach them to be sound in grace. Let's go through it a little bit. He begins by, in verse 1 of chapter 2, by saying, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And again, the word accord is interesting because it, it implies that there is a harmoniousness about it. In other words, when, when and Luke and Jessica were, Luke was playing the guitar and, and he and Jessica were singing, uh, what made that so pleasant, and I, and I hope, I, I, that was really wonderful actually, what made that so pleasant what it was, is because they were doing it in accord. There was a harmoniousness there. Uh, the Greek, Greek word tra often translated harmony as symphoneo. It means literally the same sound. That these things blend together. On the guitar, he has six strings, uh, <clears throat> five different notes. Two of them are the same note at different octaves, but they blend together, and we call that a chord. And when the chord is harmonious, we like the sound. And when it's not harmonious, we say it's dissonant. It, it makes, you know, it's like putting fingernails on the chalkboard, and it doesn't, it's not a pleasant sound. The same thing with voices. He says, there should be a harmoniousness with what we're teaching. With, with God, not just with one another. Because sometimes if we look to conform and be in harmony with other people, the chances are that we will be adapting to other people's position. What we as Christians are called to do is to focus upon the conductor of the symphony. Because the word symphoneo is where we get our word symphony. And the idea is you have a conductor who directs all the parts of the symphony and makes sure that everything is in accord so that all the instruments, all the musicians are all in accord with each other. And that creates a harmoniousness, even though they may be going in all sorts of different directions instrumentally. It all ties together. And that's essentially the, the image that Paul is saying here is when it comes to the doctrine, let's make sure that we're looking at Jesus and if we're all focusing upon Jesus, we'll end up be saying the same thing. Now, does that mean that we all agree on every point exactly? Well, I wish it did. But, you know, you take something as simple as end times, the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm going to teach it the way it's correctly taught, but there are other people who, who teach it differently, and I don't understand because otherwise they're very intelligent people. I don't know where they get it wrong. But, you know, the truth of the matter is there are things that uh, are not major themes of Scripture, and therefore we're kind of piecing different passages together and we come to our own best conclusions and we don't always agree, we decide that we're not going to major on the minors. But there are major themes of Scripture, things that are foundational to the Bible. And if we don't agree on those things, the chance that we can have harmony and fellowship is, is not likely. 
We can't really move forward. If you don't believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God and that He alone died on the cross in payment for your sins, if you don't agree with that, you're probably a nice person and I'm not going to slander you, but the point is we're not on the same page and we're not in harmony because we're really teaching two very different gospels. So there are certain things, you know, the virgin birth, the, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are certain things that are foundational to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, at least in a biblical sense. So that when you look at Christianity today, you have lots of people say, well, I'm a Christian, but they just believe in a different Jesus. Well, that doesn't make them Christians in my mind. So I always kind of qualify and say, what I am is I'm, I'm a biblical Christian, I believe the Bible is God's Word. I believe what it says. I try to interpret it as literally as I possibly can, if that makes sense, unless it's intended to be understood figuratively. But otherwise, I take it for what it means and try to conform my life to what it says. Uh, There's other people who just simply said, well, you know, it wasn't really God's commands. It was just kind of His suggestions, you know? (laughs) And again, we probably aren't going to be able to to break bread together and enjoy Christian fellowship because uh, we're really talking about two different gospels, two different gospels. Funny at prayer this afternoon, we were uh, one of the ladies was sharing about uh, being part of a church, a uh, denominational church, for many years, and she said after the Easter service, it kind of struck her that. there wasn't really a gospel presentation and she went and talked to the pastor and and he said, well, one word you'll never hear me ever use is the word sin. I I would say that in this church, one word you will never miss hearing is sin. (laughs) But really, I mean, again, it's not Christianity. It's not the gospel because the foundation of the whole gospel message begins with the idea that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the problem. There's the bad news of the gospel is that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory, and the wages of sin is death. Without that being a truth that you embrace, there's no need for Jesus to die on the cross. And if Jesus didn't die for your sins, then he didn't die for anything. And so these things become fundamental issues, and, and, and people who, who vary from that, they're free to believe whatever they want, and I respect their right to believe whatever, what they want, but they're not followers of Jesus. They're not biblical Christians. I don't think they even really justifiably have the right to call themselves Christian, because Christianity is not meant to be uh, a, a, an ethic. It's not meant to be an identity. In fact, the church, early church, never even called itself Christians. They call themselves the followers, the way. Christian was a term that the non-Christians gave to Christians. And so as a consequence, when people uh, really try to redefine the meaning of Christianity around their own personal set of opinions and beliefs and points of view, uh, I just beg to differ with them and say, well, that's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. Is that horse still moving or have I beat it enough? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry for platforming. I don't, don't mean to get on that. But I just want to make sure that we're really clear. Sound in doctrine. But also, if my doctrine is going to mean anything, I also need to be sound in faith. Because one of the things that Paul notes over and over again in this letter, he's saying that if you don't live your faith, at least at some consistent level, it's going to bring reproach on the message and it's going to cause people to discount it. You know, I mean, uh, like the, in, in my first book, one of the things I, statements I say is, if the difference that Jesus makes doesn't make a difference, what difference does it make? 
The idea is that Jesus is supposed to make a difference. And if he doesn't make a difference, then what difference does that make? My life doesn't make a difference. And nobody's going to look at me and say, what's different about you? Because they're going to say, there's nothing different about you. (laughs) You're just like the rest of us. Well, in some ways that's absolutely true, but in other ways it should be different. It should be different. I just know the moment I asked Jesus into my heart, without even knowing it, my roommates were going, what happened? Something's different. And, you know, I didn't even realize it, but God, if he's living in you, he begins to make a difference. He just begins to move your life in, in new directions without even you even having to try. But Paul begins in verse 13 when he talks about sound of faith. He says, of the Cretans, he says, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. And then he begins to delineate into various groups. He says, tell the older men, chapter 2, verse 2, to be temperate, to be worthy of respect, to be self-controlled, to be sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Then he says to the older women that they should be reverent in the way they live, to not be slanders, not to be addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Train the younger women, he says thirdly, to love their husbands and children, and to be controlled and pure, to be busy at home, and to be kind, and be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. And then he says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. To slaves, he says, be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, and not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Uh, In chapter 3, he continues, he says, remind the people, a general exhortation, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. And then finally, he says in verse 9 of chapter 3, warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time, And after that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. So he has his specific words to each group and subgroup within the church. And then finally, he tells them to be sound in grace. And he begins with a wonderful explanation of the doctrine of grace. He says in verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, I mean, the born again of the Spirit, renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life." That actually is considered to be one of the most concise and clear explanations of what the doctrine of the gospel of grace is all about. It's all about the fact it's all him, it's not me, but if I have received him, there's a change that takes place in my life, which brings me back to what I said is the key, I think, the thematic verse of the whole book, where he says again in verse 11 of chapter 2, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, keep in mind, he says it teaches us that. It doesn't guarantee that we will always make that decision. 
But we know that. We have that conviction in our hearts that if I have the Spirit of Jesus Christ living in me and the grace of God has truly saved me, that I have this internal conviction that says, you know, it's not okay for me to do ungodly things. It's not a guarantee that I won't behave ungodly at times, but it's, the point is that I can't look at it and say, it's okay for me to do that. It's the same thing. It teaches me that worldly passions are not to be the governing passion of my life, but rather a passion for God should be the governing passion in my life. And that I, I need to live a life not of letting myself go with the flow, but rather control, seeking to be controlled, to be upright, to live a God-centered life in this present age, which Paul understands, especially as he's speaking to the Cretans, I'm asking you to live in a way that's completely upstream and against the flow of the culture that you're in. And that's why, as my pastor used to always say, he said his mother always said to him when he would complain to her about something she wouldn't let him do, and he used the classic argument that teenagers since the beginning of time, you know, Cain and Abel used this with Adam and Eve, and they still use it today, but everybody else gets to do it. And so you think you're the only one that used it and have heard it. They all say it, and yet my pastor said his mother would look at him and say, any old dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to fight the current. And so Paul says that's really the reality of living the Christian life. We always bemoan that saying, well, our culture is becoming so ungodly. Uh, no, it isn't. It's always been ungodly. It's just ungodly in a different way. But there's always been a current that the believer has had to fight against that's never changed. As long as you're walking around in this rotting carcass called your body, you're going to find yourself having to deal with that on a daily basis. So that you have to be diligent. You have to watch what you watch. You have to be careful about what you entertain yourself with, what you read, what you listen to, the conversations you engage in, the things you allow to come out of your mouth, and the things you allow to come into your ears. And what you place your affections on, what becomes important, what defines you, these things all matter. And making those choices has never been easy, and it's never going to be an easy thing, that oftentimes you're just challenged. You know, and it's, 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 it's really, really very interesting how God works sometimes. Because Paul, one of the things that Paul said, one of the biggest undermining things in our life is the love of money, Right? I know you guys don't struggle with it. Other people struggle with it. But the love of money is always, it's interesting. <laughs> I, went, I went and spoke someplace, and they gave me a very, very generous gift. And I was really excited because I had a bill at home that was exactly that amount <laughs> that, I, that I didn't have the money to pay for. And I said, thank you so much. And I took it, and I paid off that bill. And I thought, this is wonderful. And then someone came to me and my wife with a need for exactly the same amount of money. <laughs> And I thought, God, this is not working out the way I had anticipated. But the Lord was very clear to me, this is something that you need to respond to. And so we did. And my wife was saying, wow, I don't know how we're going to make up for that. And I just reminded her, I said, you know, honey, the thing we have to keep in mind is that all we are is a conduit for what God gives us. You know, that's all we are. God gives and, and he doesn't just give it so that we can become uh, fabulously wealthy and happy. And he gives to us that we might give to others. That that's all you are. Because one of the things that I, I'm pretty sure is true of you, because I know it's true of me, is you're not going to live forever. You brought nothing into this world. You're not taking anything out. I know. We say, well, I want to leave something for my kids. I'm not sure that's always good for them. 
The simple fact is that it's so easy to get attached to stuff, especially things like money. And there's nothing that really shows you more about where your affections lie than when it comes to money. I'm afraid, I hate to tell you that. I hate to even tell myself that. But it's true. Because if we live lives that are tight-fisted, then we'll end up denying our faith because we don't want to have to open our hand. But you'll find that God will tap you on the shoulder and He'll show you something and say, you know, you need to help that person out. So, I say that by way of personal disclosure and uh, illustration. Let's pray. Father God, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would just help us to really get a, a balanced perspective on these things. That, Lord, I know that we live in a, in a contrary world that uh, has never, ever really embraced the real truth of the gospel, especially the life-changing effect of that gospel. And that if we're going to live our faith, Lord, we're going to have to find ourselves going against the culture and not really allowing it to control us, but rather we are called to be salt and light in the world that we're part of. We're the change agents. We're the ones who can make a difference. And it's not going to happen at the ballot box. It's not going to be having our favored candidate in office or any of those things. In fact, sometimes, Lord, the world, you allow the place to get really, really dank and dark and stinky and messed up because it's in those times, Lord, that the gospel shines the most brightly. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to live our lives in a way that will make a difference, that we'll be change makers, that we won't, our affections will not be grabbed by this world, but rather our affection will be grabbed by you and held tightly. We pray for that grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we close and worship together?